Following is a class given by His Holiness Jayapataka Swami Maharaj on January 1985 at New Taliban Farm in Carrier, Mississippi. The class begins with a reading from the Srimad Bhagavatam, 6th Canto, Chapter 5, Verse 40. Rajapati Daksha continued, If you think that simply awakening the sense of renunciation will detach one from the material world, I must say that unless full knowledge is awakened, simply changing dresses as you have done cannot possibly bring detachment. Translation of repetition. Rajapati Daksha continued, If you think that simply awakening the sense of renunciation will detach one from the material world. I must say that unless full knowledge is awakened, simply changing dresses as you have done cannot possibly bring detachment. Report. Prajapati Daksha was correct in stating that changing one's dress cannot detach one from this material world. The sannyasis of Kali Yuga who change their robes from white to saffron and then think that they can do whatever they like are more abominable than the materialistic grihastas. This is not recommended anywhere. Prajapati Daksha was right in this, uh, in what, uh, in pointing out this defect. But he did not know that Narada Muni had aroused the spirit of renunciation in the Hariyasvas and Savalasvas through full knowledge. Such enlightened renunciation is desirable. One should enter the renounced order with full knowledge. Jnana Vairagya for the perfection of life is possible for one who renounces this material world in that way. This elevated stage can be reached very easily as supported by the statements of Srimad Bhagavatam 127. Bhagavati Bhakti Yoga Prayojita Janayatyasu Vairagyam Gyanam Chayat Ahisukam Translation by rendering devotional service unto the personality of Godhead Sri Krishna, one immediately acquires causeless knowledge and detachment from the world. If one seriously engages in devotional service to Lord Vasudeva, jnana and vairagya are automatically manifest in one's person. There is no doubt of this. Prajapati Daksha's accusation that Narada had not actually elevated his sons to the platform of knowledge was not factual. All the sons of Prajapati Daksha 
had first been raised to the platform of jnana and had then automatically renounced this world. In summary, unless one's knowledge is awakened, renunciation cannot take place. But without elevated knowledge, one cannot give up attachment for material enjoyment. Thus end the Bhaktivedanta purports of te- purport of text 40, chapter 5, canto 6 of the Srimad Bhagavatam, chapter entitled Narada Muni Cursed by Prajapati Daksha. So here, Daksha is continuing to uh, give his critique or chastisement over Narada Muni's action in turning all of his uh, sons into renounced practitioners and preachers of Krishna consciousness. Prajapati Daksha's point of view is the point of view of the very orthodox Vedavadi, Karmakandi, uh, fruitive uh, Grihastas. Lord Chaitanya mentioned that there are unlimited living entities which are above matter. They are Chitkona, Jiva Sukshma. The Jiva is very minute, but that infinitesimal uh, spark of life is far more powerful even than millions of suns. It is of the spiritual potency. Therefore, should always be considered totally different from matter and transcendental. But in this conditioned life, that spirit soul or jiva atma is bound by different material bodies. So it wanders, Brahman, uh, Brahman, Brahman, Ramite, Honobhagyavan, Jeev, Guru Krishna, Prashade, Pai Bhakti, Lota Beach. It wanders through different species, going, he described, Lord Chaitanya, that uh, first it goes uh, into the Evolution of 84 lakh species that finally comes up to the human beings. He mentions that Stava Jangam Duived, that there are two categories. Those are moving and those are immovable. Amongst the moving and the immovable, the movable is more advanced. You see, movable means things like birds and uh, uh, animals and so on. So amongst the moving creatures, the most elevated is the human being. But amongst the human being, there are many uncivilized. Sabor, Bod, Jawan, so on. So these uh, type of uh, uncivilized, you can say like uh, tribal type, uncivilized uh, people, aboriginal 
uncultured meat eaters and so on, who don't know about the progressive value of spiritual life, they follow some type of primitive form of religion where they accept the body to be somehow as the soul. And they don't understand about the science of reincarnation or about the existence of the spiritual world, so on. But rather they're just uh, following some type of primitive, uh, if any, religious uh, principle. And basically they are in ignorance. Lord Chaitanya said, uh, greater than those are those who understand the Vedic principles of transcendental knowledge. It is those who at least, far, far from uh, understanding, at least those who, Veda Mukhe Dharmonahigani. They may at least give lip service that I believe in the Vedic wisdom. Oh yes, I know. But practically speaking, they don't practice it. They don't follow. Lord Chaitanya, he put these on the lowest stratum. Those who don't practice what they preach. There may be many who say, I'm Krishna conscious devotee, or may say, I follow the Vedas, or may say, I'm a Hindu. But factually speaking, if they don't practice it, they're considered to be on the lowest stratum. At least they give some lip service, so they get some credit. Sometimes they might do something. But they're considered just a little bit above the aborigines, above the uh, meeting uh, gross materialistic civilizations. Then, better than them, Lord Chaitanya described, were those who are karmanishta, those who follow the principles of fruitive work, the regulated principles of Vedic knowledge very carefully. Even then, they'll follow dharma, artha, kama, moksha. Religious activities for economic development, for sense gratification, ultimately for liberation. Even they are very systematically trying to achieve liberation. They understand reincarnation. But their idea is that first let me enjoy the material world. When I enjoy, I'll suffer the frustrations of material life. And that practical experience of frustration in trying to enjoy this material world, this will give me the real sense of renunciation. This is what Daksha is saying. Just by preaching to someone, that's not going to do it. They have to go out and enjoy it. They have to, in the enjoyment, and take the suffering, and this will be beneficial for them. For instance, like, say there's someone who's uh, never had a child, so... How are they going to understand what is the suffering of giving childbirth? They say first you should get married, have a child, and then the suffering that is there during childbirth that you'll experience, then you'll lose all taste for sex life. But practically speaking, it doesn't material enjoyment is such that we forget the suffering and we want to go on uh, tasting the enjoyment. Instead, of course, people, they've invented other ways of avoiding childbirth which the, the uh, pundits, sages couldn't even imagine that the mother would be uh, killing the child to avoid that pain, but not avoiding the enjoyment. So, Daksha, he knew, couldn't believe that people would do what they're doing today. <laughs> anyway, 
point is that he's on that particular stage. So he's at quite a elevated stage in relation to the lower stages of life, like animal, aborigine, uncivilized people. But in spiritual life, yet there are many higher stages. It says higher than the karmanishtas, the gani, one who's actually realized this actually by full knowledge that this world is the place, therefore doesn't have to personally go and have his head beat against the wall. Doesn't personally have to go and be put into that type of suffering. Actually, why does Krishna give this uh, teaching? Just like in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna in the ninth uh, chapter describes to Arjuna, Idang tu te guyatamam abhakshami anasuyave that simply I'm giving you this knowledge so you can be freed from all miseries of life. I'm giving you this knowledge which is uh, both the theoretical knowledge as well as the applied knowledge. Because you have never been envious. You're not envious soul. Anasuyavat. So, Krishna is giving though this whole education so that we can be freed from the sufferings of material life. It's not a fact that uh, the, someone gives an advice, don't go over there, you might get hurt. There's a snake there. So someone here, oh, I won't go there. It's not that you have to experience everything. And it's not, even if someone experiences something, if they don't have any knowledge, they also won't uh, necessarily develop renunciation. Because they don't know any alternative. They just think, well, this is life. I have to live with it. There's no alternative. They develop a callous mentality and then they counteract suffering by other artificial means, such as intoxication or soil. So that way they're not conscious of the suffering of material life and they more or less sidestep these problems and they don't solve them. So instead of achieving liberation, they just stay on the same level or gradually they go down, back into animal life. So Prajapati Daksha, of course, he was looking for that from that particular angle of view, the angle of view of the karma kundi. They mentioned higher than that is the gani, higher than that is the yogi. Yet higher than that is the devotee. Lord Chaitanya describes Mukti Bhukti Siddhikami Sakali Oshanto Krishna Bhakta Niskam Otoi Shanto. That all these uh, desiring material elevation, liberation, or mystic powers, they're all agitated. They're all in a very disturbed type of state, in different levels. They're not uh, peaceful. Because they got some other motive. They're always uh, trying to obtain some other status. But the devotee is very peaceful. He has no other desire except to render devotional service. So he's niskam. He's uh, selfless, desireless. Therefore, he's very peaceful. So we're teaching the science of self-realization through the process of devotional service. This is the Guru Parampara, the simplic succession coming down from Narada Muni. 
It's not that the devotees don't have any desire. Just like today I saw in the board is the appearance of Sri Jagadish Pandit. He had tremendous desire to serve Lord Jagannath. Tremendous desire. He wanted to have a festival for Lord Jagannath in Bengal. So he carried these huge Jagannath deities all the way back from Puri, all the way up to Bengal. And somehow he also had the stick of Nityananda. I forget how he got that. And even today devotees go and they touch their head with this stick that was carried by Lord Nityananda. I think they say it was part of the danda that was broken by Lord Nityananda, Lord Chaitanya Sanya Danda. This Jagadish Pandit, he was uh, Jagadish, he is a devotee of Jagannath. Even today you can see his Jagannath deity. Srila Prabhupada personally went to see those deities. <clears throat> so the devotees, they do have desires, but their desires are always devotional desires. Desire to serve Krishna. Maybe even a desire to uh, have a child, but that would be to bring a devotee into the world. And this happens sometimes, praying to Krishna. Whatever their desires are, they dovetail those desires with Krishna consciousness. Therefore, we don't become desireless in the impersonal kind of void sense where suddenly we stop thinking, feeling, and willing, and we try to become like a stone. That is the Mayavadi philosophy. You become like a stone. Stop thinking, stop feeling, and stop willing. Practically speaking, even living your dead, they want you to just become, cease to exist. That's basically the idea. So the devotee becomes desireless in the sense that they don't desire anything separate from Krishna consciousness. Whatever desire is there, it is always dovetailed. You see. So that's very difficult for these karmakandis to understand. And even more difficult for the ganis. They think that uh, sometimes they mistake that these things might be material activities. Of course, Rupa Goswami explained, quoting the Vedas, Iha yasya hiradase karmada manasagira nikalasvapyavastasu that someone who's on this transcendental platform of offering their thoughts, their words, their activities to Krishna is to already be considered liberated even while living. And practically you can see that for those impersonalists, even though they're living, or even the materialists, even though they're living, practically they're dead. Jivasya Mityusa, there was, a, I forget the exact uh, sloka, they're actually a sloka like that, even though they're, they're walking dead. In fact, Srila Prabhupada one time was sitting in the Calcutta airport, his flight was delayed, he was watching the people rush by here and there, and he said, you know, from the viewpoint of a pure devotee, all these people are dead. From the viewpoint of Krishna Khan, they're all dead people, they're just walking dead. None of them realize their eternal self. None of them understand that they have a spiritual uh, identity. They're just walking as the, you see, bodies, which are all heading only for death. Bodies are actually dead. Body is not alive. It's made to appear alive because of the presence of the atma, of the soul. You take the soul out of the body, 
is again appearing as it actually is. Death is due to the presence of the Atma that the body uh, appears to be alive. So we put so much emphasis on the body and trying to make the body satisfy the body uh, comfortable. Rather, the body is a vehicle. We should use it to take us back to home, back to God, and use it, as Prabhupada used to say, make the best use of a bad bargain. We have a material body. That means we have to suffer birth, death, old age, disease. We have to suffer different uh, types of miseries in the material world. But at the same time, this body can also bring us to eternal happiness and liberation. So we should make the best use of a bad bargain. Just like if you uh, get lost in the sea, you might have just a little uh, life raft. But it's better than being there swimming with the sharks, the jaws. Better to be even in a life raft. So similarly, in this material world, having a material body is itself dangerous. But we have a human body. With this human body, we can cross over the ocean. So even though we are in a material world, we should take good use of this facility that's been given to us by Krishna. That is the facility of having this material body. Human body, whereby we can become God conscious. We can understand what is the actual purpose of life. We can engage in transcendental activity. <laughs> but here, you see, uh, Daksha, he's again saying, well, unless one has full knowledge, they can't renounce. So, that's his basic point, that people should enjoy life and then renounce. He thinks that you can't get full knowledge just by theory. Of course, Prabhupada gives the example that sometimes if it's raining outside, you see someone getting wet. You don't have to go out in the rain yourself. You can stay inside and say, they're all getting wet. Why should I go out? So, similarly, in our devotional life, it's recommended that we should uh, practice Krishna consciousness, try to understand this philosophy. We should always remain active. Now, we basically follow, for organization's sake, as this is also recommended in the Shastra, although the Vaishnava is above all caste, creed, color, whatever, he's transcendental, not the body at all. So similarly, they're not really Brahmanas, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, or Sudras, or Sannyasi, Vanaprasti, Grihasti, or Brahmacharis. Actually, a real identity is where the Krishna Dasa, Anudasa, Anudasa, where the servant of the servant of the servant of Krishna. Jivar Sarukhoi, Nitya Krishna Das, where the eternal servant of Krishna. But nonetheless, because we're living in a material world, we have to follow some system of organization. So the Vedic system is the best for a progressive social as well as spiritual advancement. So, as far as uh, possible and applicable, we do follow this ba basic uh, Varnashram system, at least uh, in the transcendental sense, considering everyone to be Vaishnavas, not in the materialistic sense of birthright and so on. But considering everyone to be on the transcendental 
platform, but according to their different stages in their life, they follow different rules and regulations. For instance, grihastas are allowed to associate men and women. You see, husband and wife can associate together. But, uh, vanaprastis are allowed to associate with their wife, but not for sex life, but in a type of more retired way, preparing for renunciation. So, Daksha, he's saying everyone has to go directly from uh, Brahmachari to Grihastha, then in this way go through the entire uh, stage of material life. This also is generally followed. It's not that he's that completely unorthodox. He's very orthodox. He's too orthodox. He's so orthodox he doesn't know that if one is actually inspired by Krishna consciousness, they can become so uh, spiritually enlivened that in fact they, uh, through full understanding of Krishna consciousness, they don't have to engage in the gross material activities or they don't have to actually personally experience the pains and pleasures of Rihasta life in order to uh, achieve renunciation. Vashila Prabhupada, he recommended that between the ages of uh, 25 and 30, basically, type of final decision should be made, especially if at age of 30 or over. You see, whenever one gets the sense, a person should uh, make a commitment to remain as a uh, lifelong uh, brahmachari. Or, if you can't make that commitment, then you should take grihastha life. You see. Because uh, one just can't indefinitely stay in some type of a non-committal stage. At the time of death, we have to definitely make a commitment. Are we going back to home, back to Godhead? Or are we going to stay in the material? What are we going to do? So, our whole lifetime is the preparation for spiritual realization. So, in this regard, a person has to make some kind of a commitment. can't just remain income uncommitted indefinitely. So, Srila Prabhupada said that uh, basically recommended as a guideline, as a person's joining. Of course, it may vary because some people join older and they're different things, but under normal circumstances, at the age of 30, one should make that commitment. If you're over 30, then you should definitely make that type of a commitment one way or the other. You can't say, well, I'll decide later. Keep putting it off. Because... Uh, that's not training. That's just like trying to avoid the issue. You can't avoid it indefinitely. And after uh, 30, 35, in fact, Grihastha life is, uh, is not exactly the same. So if a person puts it off uh, too far, then they may all say, well, actually, I would have been happier if I got married younger, you see. The real problem was I waited too long. Then they think that, we'll take another birth and try it out at a younger age. You know, that's not, we should leave this world with just our mind on Krishna. We shouldn't be looking back. We shouldn't look back to see what's happening. We should be completely fixed going back home, back to Godhead. So whatever is our position of greater strength, even then it's not like a, a material fall down or something like that. 
it's not going into daksha, I hope it's not, and it shouldn't be going, as I mentioned yesterday, into this activity like a Daksha Maharaj, or Daksha rather, Prajapati, was conceiving. But rather what it is, is just taking of the position of greater strength. Some people, they are more, uh, they are rather stronger in renunciation. And others, they will be stronger in the association of family. Their mind will be just more peaceful. It doesn't mean that uh, one, ultimately what service a person is doing, how fixed up they are in Krishna consciousness, how steady they are, that's what's going to count. Where is the energy going? If a person is in Grihastha life, but still their energy is going to Krishna, that's what counts. If a person enters into uh, sannyas life, and if their service is not going to Krishna, if it's going uh, into uh, politics or into some other kind of activity, that would also be a fall down. So the, in all cases, the question is that, in fact, sannyasi theoretically should be, be not have to care for family and other uh, responsibilities on that side, would be able to give more energy. That's the whole attraction. You can give more energy without uh, so much material maintenance. What is family means you have to do a little more maintenance work, you see. But for some people, <coughs> for some devotees, that may not be a position of strength. In fact, the mind may be so uh, either, dis- either disturbed or just not uh, serious uh, to get uh, not uh, responsible enough that uh, even though one doesn't have that uh, family responsibility, it doesn't also become very responsible in sannyas life. And so then the energy ultimately doesn't go to Krishna. They just kind of display. So all these things have to be analyzed. Sometimes the person may even have to discuss with senior god brothers. But that is the basic thing that also we find here, Prabhupada mentioned in this particular verse that enlightened renunciation is desirable. One should enter the renounced order with full knowledge, jnana vairagya, for the perfection of life is possible for one who renounces this world in that way. So there is impetus to do that. Actually speaking, our grihasta devotees are entering into if they're very careful, they're also entering into a type of uh, renounced life as compared to what to speak of the materialists in the modern world, even compared to Prajapati Daksha's analysis, which is that you should enjoy life and then through the enjoyment you get hit on, you get suffer and then you uh, renounce. So, Basically, it's just being very pragmatic. Utility is the principle. Taking whatever is the strongest position of, uh, for that particular devotee. Whatever decisions made, we shouldn't look back. We should just uh, forge forward and try to give all of our energy to Krishna. The whole point is that uh, everything we do, it should always be a very committed, determined devotional service to Krishna. This is very important that we remain very serious 
in all of our activities. Someone who is uh, doing devotional service without full commitment won't be getting the full result. It's like doing something without full knowledge. You don't get the full result if you do something without full commitment. Just like somebody going to college. I don't know if I'll enroll you. I just want to sit in the class and see how I like it. Even after taking initiation, if we're still not fully committing ourselves to preaching, not fully committing ourselves to Krishna consciousness, we're not fully committing ourselves, are we going to be acting in this uh, platform of life or that platform or what are we? We're not. We're just kind of remaining in an uncommitted state. That means that actually our mind, we're letting it have a little bit of uh, loose rope in which it can kind of remain unsurrendered. So it's better that we tighten in the rope, you see. The point is that we have to tighten in the rope one way or another. At least before we die, we should be have it totally under control. You see. The safety valves are there in the beginning of our spiritual life, just like when someone joins, we tell them that you can do any service. Actually, they can. Just try to somehow or another do the service which is very easy, which is very natural for you. If you like to do farming, do farming. If you like to do artwork, do artwork. If you like to do driving, then drive, teaching, to whatever. And as a person becomes more advanced, if they, as they take uh, more and more responsibility for the spiritual master, then it says in the higher stage of devotional service, it's more important for those devotees to carry out the order of the spiritual master than simply to follow the regulated principles. Now they don't give up regulated principles, you know, just the, following the voidi bhakti. For instance, by nature it might be someone's nature to be a carpenter. But the spiritual master, he may need someone to do something very urgently and so that person learns how instead to be a typist, or how to do uh, be a preacher. You see, that's additional higher type of uh, higher type of uh, responsibility. When we were in India, uh, Srila Prabhupada, of course, he wanted us to finish buildings at record time. He wanted us to finish these huge buildings. He said, finish this in three months. In fact, we finished, we had 1.600 people working at one time. We had 600 people, we were digging simultaneously a man-made lake, constructing a 75 foot, 103 room building, another uh, two-story building, and a prashadam pavilion that could feed 2,000 people all at the same time. 600 people working. Two ships. And it looked like the pyramid. And the people going down into this man-made lake, cutting and uh, putting the baskets on their head and they go out 10 feet, give it to the next person. It's like the whole pyramids. You know, there's so many people working everywhere. We'd be running around all the time. Some places they build a wall where there's supposed to be a door. It's, what are you doing? The engineer was there. Oh, it's, you had to bring, you know. Just, so you had to constantly be going everywhere. Even you had engineers and contractors that still make thousand mistakes. Or the laborers, they kind of go slow, you know, they don't work as fast as they could. 
or they try to skip on the mixes, and there's always this thing, you have to be everywhere at the same time. Then, uh, when you're building fast like that, there's so many things you have to put in. Dirt, uh, to we have flood area that's so there to lift the floor, but if you just put in dirt, then it's not settled. When the first rains come, the moisture will go in and the whole floor will cave down. Because you can't just pile up more than four inches of dirt at a time. Those air pockets in there, when moisture hits it, it settles, and then your whole floor caves in. So there's all these type of things we had to put in sand, and we didn't have any pumps to pump in the water. All this is just like, you know, all these things are going on simultaneously. Srila Prabhupada said, I want it done in three months. I'll be back here. He came in November, so I'll be back here for Gaur Purnima. I want it finished by then. You know, it's something like that. So then, uh, you know, sometimes the devotee would be there, you know, so where is, you know, where is, uh, he's in Mangala. What the heck is he doing? I got a 24 hour shift now, it's three weeks. You know, Get him out of there. Was he there? <laughs> <laughs> well, Prabhupada's phone, I call up at one o'clock, he'd be up at one o'clock, you know, he said, somebody's been knocking on your door, you just had finished a 12 o'clock shift. You'd go there, and Prabhupada would say, why are there no construction going on? It's one in the morning. <laughs> Well, Prabhupada, just up till midnight shift. He said, not 24-hour shift. <laughs> and he expected you to be there all 24 hours. <laughs> I don't know. It was very intense. One time, there was one government man had come in October, and then he came after Gorpurnima, about four months later. And he was a little envious type of person. He was a communistic type person. He came... And I was touring him around, and he came and he saw these buildings that we had just built, you know, in that time, three months. And I literally saw, he started shaking. He was literally shaking. He couldn't speak. He said, oh, <laughs> just like that, he's totally choked. I said, where did these come from? How did it? I mean, you know, totally, you know, flabbergasted. I said, we just built this. You know, just, I mean, totally, you know, he was, guy was, I never saw a person so shook up in my life. And it was like, color left his but He said, it would take us three years just to get permission from the government to build these. <laughs> to get the budget approved, you know, and it'd take five years to build it. How did you do it? It's, he just, you know, he just walked off holding it, he was just speechless, you know. He couldn't imagine that, you know, just, it was beyond his conception that it could even be done to mobilize, you know, that many men. I mean, you know, they, they can't even dream of that. Normally, even the government, they just do something, you know. In India, I mean, you know, very gradually, to say the least. So, I mean, it's, uh, I, didn't, I didn't think it was a promise for three months I had to do it, so he just did it. Whatever it took. But then, you know, when I saw that person's reaction, I could realize that for India, that was something very amazing. You know, once we got off our war schedule, of course, we went right back to our normal, you know, activities. But during that intense period, I mean, that was uh, more important to carry out Prabhupada's order to us than the, you see, normal routine that we we're going through. Of course, then you... You develop, you know, 
habits like that, so that you know, when there isn't such a war type of, you know, intense situation, you have to again go back into normal activities and uh, routines and everything like that, because that's a very strong position. That's a good example as well. But we are going into these different kinds of situations. So that's also a type of level that in a higher stage of devotional service is actually mentioned that your devotion, that carrying out the order of the Guru takes precedent over any other consideration. If the Guru orders you that you have to do this particular service, that's more important. But in the beginning, therefore, we don't give any special orders to neophyte devotees because what they need to do is just be very steady in all of their practices and let their mind become very peaceful. Once they develop a taste for devotional service, even this intense pressure given because of their commitment to serving the spiritual master, that will carry them over all the obstacles. You see. So, the point is that there has to be that commitment developed. And as we are going closer and closer towards changing our body, we should gradually have a full commitment. We shouldn't allow our mind to just stay in some type of nebulous state where we're not committed. We should gradually come up, just as a bhakta, they come in, they first look and see, let me test it out, let me see if this is what I want, or maybe decide this is really what I want, but now they get trained up. Then they become more and more convinced, their faith increases, they see actually this is what I want, this is uh, going to give me my uh, spiritual emancipation or spiritual life, this is going to, this is making me happy, this is making me peaceful, alright, there may be these obstacles, but uh, these are the different stages we go through. And then they take a commitment, they take initiation, that's their first commitment. So the spiritual master just gives basic uh, general principles, four regular principles, chant your 16 rounds, attend all the temple programs, they gradually take a little more responsibility, Maybe sometime they do Sankirtan, or sometime they take, actually they may even become like a temple commander, then they may in some places even become in more and more responsible positions of devotional service. And this way devotional life goes on. When we become spontaneously committed to Krishna, we're actually, we're in anxiety and we're actually identifying with our service to Krishna and the spiritual master, that spiritual anxiety, a spiritual concern, actually keeps us satisfied. It's not the same as the material anxiety because in there is actually a type of loving exchange with Krishna where we are so firmly identified with Krishna that our interest and Krishna's interest are one. Therefore, that service, that commitment is on the transcendental platform. Therefore, Krishna says that I am the heart of my devotees and my devotees are and uh, or she said, I am in the heart of my devotees and my devotees are in my heart. My heart is my devotee and the devotee's heart is me. So therefore we feel in the presence of uh, a pure devotee the presence of Krishna. And Krishna is saying, yes, and when you are in my associate, you'll feel that in my heart I am the devotee. <laughs> That's what he said when the four Kumaras came or when the Dravasa Muni came. And in my heart, I keep the devotee. No separatism. It's a total unity. That whatever Krishna's interest, that is the devotee's interest. And if the devotee wants something because he's so thoroughly in tune with Krishna, 
That also is Krishna's desire. That for Krishna, he also tries to fulfill the desire of the devotee. Because the desire of the devotee is just another manifestation of Krishna's own desire. Only applied in a specific circumstance. So, at that time, that devotee is not in the material world. It's nothing to do with karma. It's only acting on behalf of Krishna. So gradually we try to come up to that platform by trying to come into more and more responsible positions of devotional service, being committed to serving the spiritual master in different uh, ways, being very uh, careful to always keep our mind on a progressive path of uh, spiritual renunciation in the real sense, in the sense of trying to act for the pleasure of Krishna in every circumstance. The devotee doesn't rest on the laurels, so to speak. doesn't, all right, I went through all these uh, campaigns, you know, so now I can relax because our devotional service never ends. We don't have any other desire. We're not, if we're doing devotional service to get liberation, then we think, all right, I did enough, no, by this time I should get liberated, now I can sit back. I'll get to the heavenly planets. I can just coast now and just somehow another. I'm well ahead of the pack. If I just kind of coast, I'll win the marathon. But because our desire is not like that, we don't have a separate desire. At least the pure devotees, they don't have a separate desire. The desire is to please Krishna. So they just keep, it just keeps going higher and higher and higher, the intensity. Until it goes so intense that even Krishna himself is forced to come to that devotee. It's like Narada Muni, when he was just a small child, he was chanting so intensely, he was crying, and Krishna appeared to him. Dhruva Maharaj, he became so intense in his desire to see Narayana, that Narayana personally came. Sometimes the Bhajavasis, like Radharani's love for Krishna sometimes is so intense that Krishna can no longer hide himself. He has to come forward. When it reaches like, what do they call that? The ultimate mass? Critical mass? The intensity of devotion becomes so intense, so so deep, that even Krishna himself is... Uh, He's uh, overwhelmed. They have so much devotion for me. What can I do for them? And the devotee doesn't want anything separate. So I just want to please you, Krishna. So then Krishna, he allows more service. And this way it goes on. That's the mood of Vrindavan. That's the difference. That's why the Vrindavan pastimes are actually so intense. 